Hello, and welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast. This is a podcast intended to entertain, educate, celebrate, and give a little back to the product leadership community. Hello, and welcome to the pod. Today, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Scott Rigby. He's an author, behavioral scientist, and founder and CEO of Immersive Inc., a company focusing on the application of behavioral science to organizations, products, and services. Scott and Immersive work with both big and small companies on culture and development, motivational best practices. He's a leading authority on predictive measurement of motivation and engagement, as well as on interventions to improve organizational culture. Clients include Prudential, Amazon, Warner Brothers, Johnson & Johnson, and Disney. He's authored numerous books. You can find him at motivationworks.com, a platform that empowers organizations to build greater employee engagement. This is episode two of three. If you missed the first one, make sure you head back and listen to episode one on autonomy. All right, welcome back. We're going to get into competence and go deep on that today. One of the things that we ended last conversation with was this notion of of rationale, specifically as it applies to engagement. And we meant that in the sense of like employee engagement on teams and how to create sort of organizational growth and competence. But I think in terms of competence in the grander sense of self-determination theory, there's this great tie-in from where we just left off and sort of how competence is really this connection point in the theory. Can you center us for a moment, Scott, on what competence is and specifically how it relates to the other two aspects of self-determination theory. What is this thing called competence as a rough definition as we start out? Sure. Well, first, uh, Paul, Sean, great to be back on again for the second chapter. So competence in some ways was is the eldest child of the basic psychological needs. This is one that has been kicked around even before Edison Ryan started to assemble self-determination theory. There was ideas like affectance, motivation, and other things that go way back because it's the most observable of what we know from looking at almost all living things is that living things want to be successful. There's clearly a evolutionary advantage to being the one that gets the food and, you know, is able to avoid the saber tooth tiger and whatever it might be. And that's really, when we talk about our basic psychological need for competence, we're talking about that need to be effective and to be successful at what we're doing. You see this, of course, uh, we, we used example of kids on our previous chapter on autonomy, but you really see this around competence. You, you see as kids develop, they go from crawling to walking to running. You don't often hear a parent say, look, I trained my kid to walk because you didn't train your kid to walk. Your kid learned how to walk. And that's an example of this intrinsic need to be successful at play. It's also another dimension that's traditionally assigned to this need for competence is the idea of growth and development. We don't just want to be successful at the same thing every day. We want to be elaborating our skills, elaborating our abilities. So this is another dimension is probably important to talk about at various levels. Yeah. As a product leader, as a a manager of people and, and both a contributor on teams, one of the things that I know product leaders speaking for, for those on teams on scrum teams, shipping features, innovating daily. I think pervasive in our industry is this concept of imposter syndrome and competence and imposter syndrome are kind of the the yin and yang. We want to become masters. We feel like we're making a difference and we know that we're in a place where we can affect change. Uh, But product leaders often have this struggle where there's a perception that they're not necessarily 
the master, even though they are the right one in the job to do the task that needs to be done. And I wonder, how do we know that we're competent? How can we start to address this imposter syndrome that starts to uh, drag on, on product leaders and organizations? Yeah, well, you're definitely activating my clinical psychology background when you talk about imposter syndrome. And my first thing is, well, imposter syndrome therapy wouldn't hurt, right? <laughs> but I know that's not what you're <laughs> So just for the audience, I don't know if the audience knows, you know, imposter syndrome is the experience that some people have, and a lot of people have, and particularly a lot of highly successful people have, that their success is kind of just a fluke or lucky, or they managed to trick everybody and i.e. they're an imposter and they're not really you know, getting the job done the right way. And it's something that when you think about the dynamics of how to give people the experience of competence and need fulfillment, it definitely can help to at least move people successfully through, even if they're struggling with those kind of internal imposter syndrome impulses. Because a lot of what we uh, talk about when we talk about supporting competence is a few things. First, give people strong, what we call informational feedback that lets them understand their effectiveness and also gives them the feedback they need in order to grow. And so informational feedback is feedback that helps even if weren't fully successful in what you just did, right? So we didn't hit the deadline on time or something broke or whatever it might be. Informational feedback tends to be feedback that isn't about you did this right or wrong, which can kind of fuel or exacerbate those imposter syndrome feelings. In other words, if somebody has imposter syndrome, you're like, wow, you're really smart, or you did really well, or that was great. That's not going to help them with the imposter syndrome. That's going to fuel it because they're just going to, you know, you're making this attribute. like, well, I managed to trick you yet again. Right. But it's similarly, if you tell people that they fail or this or that, it's, it just kind of activates, to use another psychology term, just gets their ego involved. If instead we focus on what happened and give information about it, then we have the opportunity to grow. You know, I think what happened there is that by, you know, trying to push one more version of the code before we wanted to deploy that, that was a little too ambitious because we didn't have time to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and then there's a conversation that comes from that. But now, you know, even though we're talking about a criticism of the work that was done we're dealing with the details so that somebody can learn and grow from that. And if you focus on that learning and growth, then the underlying uh, need for mastery or competence, sometimes we call them competence mastery, that underlying need gets satisfied a bit. I've learned something. Uh, my skill is developing. I'm getting better at this. And so to always be focused on that, you know, at that level of detail and information versus being evaluative. And everybody's probably heard of some version of this, right? We hear in our kids, don't tell them they're smart, tell them they're hardworking, you know, or talk about something specific that they've done well. And it's the same principle that's at hand here. It's kind of do not say. Yeah. You know, on the flip side of the imposter syndrome that Paul just mentioned, you have this concept of the Dunning and Kruger's work, right? So overconfidence, like we tend to have more confidence in our abilities than we actually have in competence. And I think the original studies were done around humor. Like we all tend to think we're funnier than we actually are on different scales of humor. It's like riding that balance so that you actually get the growth. That's, I think what you just tapped into Scott, you know, that direct informational feedback around where you actually are on the competence curve. You know, competence is somewhat asymptotic, right? You start out, you learn a lot and then 
becoming an authentic master in any domain takes a long, long time. And in theory, you never really achieve it because you're always learning. You never stop growing. I loved what you said about focusing on the growth. So the need isn't necessarily the actual competence. The need is the growth, like to see that you're growing and learning and achieving. And the, the competence that you bring to the table is actually valuable to the task at hand. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like, particularly on that last point that I think effectiveness is important in there. So I think that if, if somebody's always kind of fallen short of the goal, there, there's going to be issues there. But then I think if you have informational feedback around that, you've got the basis to have a conversation and say, all right, you know, we've run into a lot of walls. What do we need to do about it? what kind of larger structural things do we need to do? But when I say what we need to do, I mean, in order to, you know, make you and the team successful, because this isn't working. And by giving that informational feedback, you've provided the foundation for that, right? And so I do think that overall, even when you're talking about effectiveness, in always, to your point, Sean, in the larger sphere of growth, when we're talking about teams and organizations. Yeah. So Carol Dweck's milestone book, Mindset, talks a lot about the growth versus the fixed mindset and sort of the ability for people to be both at various tasks at various levels. And, you know, say, I think as a leader, as both a leader of teams, as a product leader who's crafting and influencing experiences that users have, that this concept of growth is intrinsic to competence and, and mastery. Kind of like Sean just said, it's not necessarily the destination of mastery, it's the journey along the way. And I wonder, are there ways that we can both identify areas that are fixed in our own areas of growth and help those areas in, in others? Are there tactics that you found successful, specifically in, in organizational settings? We were talking about you know, engagement a moment ago. How are ways that we can empower teams to be more growth focused and identify those areas if they're blind spots? Yeah, I think that's the whole ballgame. And I think, again, just to come back to some of the underlying jargony stuff that we're using here, because I don't know if your audience is aware of all these theories you throw them out. You have a really smart audience, if, if, if so, that's great. But, you know, the idea of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, Dwex work is, you know, fixed is kind of feeling like, well, I'm not going to be, a, you know, growth really isn't a thing. I can do what I can do. And that's pretty much it. Um, versus a growth mindset, which is obviously that I can learn and adapt, et cetera. And, and, you know, we don't use that language a lot. As a matter of fact, I don't find a lot of utility for kind of these you know, classifications because to your point, Paul, the reality is that depending on the circumstances, depending on the levels of support in the environment, it's like we can feel stuck or we can feel growthful, right? So, you know, th there's always that opportunity so I tend to not think about the people on my team or customers or it's like, well, they have a fixed mindset or they have a fixed mindset about these things. It's more that you observe this sense of that they feel stuck. They feel like they lack confidence. And that to me, and of course, this is the perspective of our framework, is they're lacking some kind of supports or something that's misaligned here. And so then we intervene at the level of those basic needs, right? Are you feeling stuck? Because, you know, in the last session, we talked about autonomy. We talked about the idea of narratives. Are you not seeing pathways for growth? And so your motivation is flagging. Or are you feeling stuck because you haven't had enough experiences of success? You haven't had those experiences of efficacy, or you're not sure where to go next because, you know, you're not getting the informational feedback and those loops to help you kind of learn and grow in those ways. Chances are, if you just pay attention and address those fundamental issues around basic need support, you're going to always optimize. 
for moving people to growth mindsets over fixed mindsets. And if that's not the case, then again, as something I alluded to earlier, I do think in organizations, you get kind of this misalignment, right? Where somebody is not quite right, either in the organization or in the team, or there's something larger going on, but at least you set the groundwork for having kind of a conversation at that level. And in most cases, you're going to find that people get, I'll air quote this for Say I'm Eric Wooden because it's a podcast, like unstuck you know, from where they happen to be. Yeah. Well, you said it earlier. And what resonated with me around this concept of growth versus fixed earlier was the focus on the learning and not on the accomplishment itself. Like that's, I think, where there's a lot of flaws you'd mentioned in gamification, right? So like, oh, I got a badge. Great. But really, where's the value? Is it in the badge? No, it was in the toil that produced the badge. Like that's where the, the need is met is in the toil when you actually see this work that you did actually added value to the ecosystem it added value to yourself, it added value to your team. That's the real nugget. All right, so bringing us back to earth here in the context of product development. So in the first episode, we talked about autonomy. We framed it up as like, hey, we're organizing a bunch of people that have money. They give us this money to construct a team of people, smart artists and engineers that are going to go build a product for a bunch of people. Now, in the context of an audience, we know that this is really important, especially early in the relationship. Like when you're onboarding, think of, I know, Scott, you've done a lot of work in games, right? When you're onboarding users in context, you got to give them those quick wins. So I think this concept of competence and the nugget again that you've struck, at least in me, is that the toil is important. I'd love to hear some lessons from you in context of onboarding people into a new product. Well, you know, we often think about this as a series of stages with competence, sort of almost like a ramp. And I think this works both at the level of, if you think about the, you know, customers of, you know, a game or a product, you know, the consumers, as well as thinking about folks on, on teams, which are, you know, the first thing that happens is you need to understand what, what you can refer to as the schema for this experience or for what's going on, which is, what is this about? Why am I here? What does this thing do? What does this game do? What does this application do? What is its purpose? And what are kind of the rules of engagement for this whole process, right? And so you need to understand the basic elements of schema. And a lot of the things that get a lot of strong focus, like the user interface and, you know, kind of human factors will often fall into that early kind of schema, just understanding the rules of the universe. This is why, by the way, when you see people go into a, a video game for the first time. One of the first things they do is that they try to break everything. They go into a room and they're really just like, you know, to the uninformed observer, be like, see, this, everybody just wants to be violent. Why does everybody want to be so violent? Well, they're just trying to understand the physics of the game. Like, what can I do? What are the verbs I can use in this experience? And so this idea of what are the verbs in this, you know, those are a lot of things around the game. Once that is figured out, then you have that basic efficacy, which is okay. Can I successfully do the tasks here? Can I get across the finish line on the tasks? That's different than skill. Efficacy is, can I get it done? Skill is, am I good at it? And those are kind of two different experiences. And so you need to have schema before you can have a sense of efficacy. Then you need to have efficacy before you can have a sense of skill. And it's sort of like schema and efficacy form the foundation on which you can kind of launch a sense of growth. And so now I'm developing skill. I'm good at this. And then this is where you start to see people wanting to set goals for themselves, where they can kind of structure and become more skillful and better. And then 
we also think about another thing, which is this idea of mastery, which is kind of skill leads to the sense of mastery, which is not just that I'm good at this. I have developed a narrative where, you know, I'm extremely competent such that I can create new ways of, you know, using this application or interacting this environment, or I can be training other people. You know, it's almost like, because I'm a Star Wars nerd, you know, the student becomes the master, right? <laughs> Whatever that line was. Once I was but the learner, now I am the master. Exactly. It's that idea. And this is what you see in a lot of entertainment applications in particular, but it's, it's a really nice model for understanding, you know, how to onboard people and think about their journey, specifically in the competence domain. Yeah. One of the things that I heard you say there about schema and efficacy, specifically as it ties to onboarding, is this concept of what are the verbs that I can use? What are the limits? What are the physics of the space that I'm in? And in the context of a video game, that makes perfect sense. But in an ERP, in a business enterprise platform, in any kind of digital experience where a user is trying to get something done, whether it's a business task or mastering a song on Guitar Hero, there is a competence ramp that you need to enable visible progression through. And the user may not even be aware that they're going through it. They may just be there to rebalance their 401k in a financial app, but they need to understand what are the verbs that I can use? What is the thing that I'm trying to understand? What's the task that I'm trying to get done? So I think in video games, it definitely has a, a much more upfront component to the experience, but even in the most corporate settings, yeah. the experiences that we build all have the same fundamental ramp. Yeah. And I, I mean, I use games as an example, not to say things should be like games. There was a danger in that, that it's like, oh yeah, but we're talking about serious real world adult stuff here. But the reason is that you know people don't understand a lot of times why there's such a great study for just building software generally. And it's not about the fun. It's about these are incredibly complex voluntary experiences that, you know, draw people in some of the most complex pieces of software out there, you know, with multiple overlapping systems and everything else, which people engage in voluntarily. <laughs> so they're kind of a great model to look at you know, these kinds of overall mechanics that can be motivational. And I think the idea of hunting for the verbs, right? Every user is hunting for the verbs uh, is true everywhere. I think that's universal. One of the things that struck me particularly that I'd never heard before is that people in new environments, they go in and they try to break everything, at least in this voluntary scenario, like a game, because they need to understand what it's going to take to be successful. So I think that can perfectly be applied to any business scenario. Like, hey, what are the things that they should be trying to break so that they can be successful? And how can we like, create that competence ramp? to create a more joyful, more powerful experience in any scenarios. Yeah, they're trying to figure out the shape of the environment itself and how they're going to be able to act within it. Yeah. So thank you, Scott. This was a great episode. I got a lot out of it myself. I hope the audience does too. Are we done already? I think we are. You want to keep going? Um, <laughs> always, but that's okay. I know your listeners need to move on with their lives. We've got one more episode to record on relatedness. So stay tuned. Thanks, Scott. Well, that's it for today. In line with our goals of transparency and listening, we really want to hear from you. Sean and I are committed to reading every piece of feedback that we get. So please leave a comment or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Not only does it help us continue to improve, but it also helps the show climb up the rankings so that we can help other listeners move, touch, and inspire the world just like you're doing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next episode. Mm -hmm.